Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and this week we're going to be talking about the crisis in Russia and Ukraine. And what a time to be talking about that because we are recording this podcast on the 22nd of February and just last night we saw a pretty serious escalation in that crisis with Putin recognising two so-called separatist uh, states within eastern Ukraine and then sending peacekeeping troops, apparent peacekeeping troops across the border into those two separatist republics, uh, which has been seen by many Western leaders as a serious escalation in the crisis and perhaps the first step in an invasion. So clearly a very febrile time, things changing very quickly. So I'm delighted to say I've been joined today by uh, Victor Sabo, an investment director on our emerging market debt team, and Edward Glossop, an emerging market economist, to help us understand, A, the issues that are going on at the moment, but also to give us a bit of perspective as to where this crisis has come from, think through some of the possible options from here, and also perhaps some of the longer-term geopolitical consequences as well. So, gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us today. I know it has been a very busy day for both of you around this. So, Ed, perhaps I can start with you and just get us to sort of walk us through where we are in the situation as things stand right now, perhaps putting a little bit more detail on that sketch I gave at the start there. Thanks, Luke. Yes, I think you, you did quite a good job at, um, at sketching out what has actually happened. But I think just to take a, a step back, you know, obviously the crisis uh, with Russia and Ukraine started, the, the current version of the crisis started back in December where Russia initiated its its so-called demands, its national security demands. And since then, we effectively, the crisis has ebbed and flowed. Um, and ultimately, the, the diplomatic talks so far, it appears that Putin seems to have not, not got what he wants from those talks. So as Luke, as you mentioned last night, we, we saw a, probably the, the most significant escalation in the crisis that we have had so far. Um, with with Putin doing doing a few things. So first, he he recognised the independence of two regions within um, eastern Ukraine. He recognised their independence. Um, but th- I mean, I think this is partly symbolic because those two regions are already pro-Russia, um, controlled by Russian separatists. So I think the the bigger escalation was the fact that official Russian troops have now crossed the border, which, as you said, Luke is potentially a prelude to a to a formal invasion. I think it's kind of worth noting that there is still a grey area as to whether this is a force, whether this is an invasion or not. Um, you know, we, we've seen some policymakers in the West uh, claim this is a full invasion because troops have crossed the border. We've seen others, notably those in the, in the European Union, be a little bit more guarded because the Russian troops are simply just uh, occupying space that Russian separatists have and not claiming new territory, then perhaps that is slightly more mild escalation. So I think there are lots more questions than we have answers at this stage. Um, but I think that that is where we are so far. All right, that was really helpful. Thanks. So perhaps before we sort of progress with what can happen from there, it might be useful, Victor, if you sort of give us a bit of the broader context to this crisis. I mean, what's driving Putin sort of, I know, a bit of amateur criminologists there, but sort of your sense of sort of what the deeper structural drivers of what's behind all of this? Yeah, sure. That's quite an interesting question. And before going into uh, the drivers of Putin, just to clarify, I mean, 
Putin has given orders for the so-called peacekeeping troops to move into the occupied territories or the newly independent territories, but the media reports are not yet clear over whether those troops actually have crossed the border or not. And with that turning to, to Putin, I mean, no one really knows what, what is his ultimate objective. Uh, no one sees into his head, though there are many analysts who are trying to, to pretend that. Uh, so there are many possibilities. Uh, the first one is probably kind of a top level strategic one. And we take the clue from the treaty proposals he published last December, uh, treaty with NATO and the US, where basically he wants written security guarantees for Russia and also wants the NATO to move back to beyond its 1997 borders, uh, clearly identifying a sphere of influence. Um, Russia is not happy that NATO has clearly moved into that sphere of influence. Uh, a lot of former Warsaw Bloc countries joined um, the NATO, Baltic countries joined, that clearly Russia sees as, as a military threat and wants to counteract that. Uh, another possibility is the legacy issue. Uh, Putin may, might want to restore the greater Russia uh, that would probably involve uh, uniting Belarus, Ukraine with, uh, with Russia. That's kind of a, a more grandiose plan uh, for, for the centuries to come. That would mean a permanent annexation of uh, Ukraine. Um, so that's another possibility or quite oft-cited uh, possibility is just as any politician, he wants to stay in power. And for him, a successful and democratic Ukraine uh, next door would really present uh, an unwanted example for his people that there is a possibility in a post-Soviet country to have democratic and prosperous country. Um, and from that perspective, he was clearly losing influence with Ukraine going, gaining more and more independence. So he wants to have a regime change. And in that case, the, the conflict might end here uh, with Ukraine. But if you think that it is indeed the first option, the kind of strategic security, then this conflict still has many more legs to go. On that point of many more legs to go, and by the way, thank you very much for that helpful clarification at the start there. It was a, a good point, well made. But yeah, in terms of where these legs might take us, Ed, I mean, do you have a sense of sort of what the Russian plan could be for here? I mean, can you map it out some potential scenarios around that? I can certainly try. Um, thanks, Luke. I, I, I guess to me, it seems like the plan is to... Um, gradually ratchet up the tensions and well, well I guess there's a few things first is to sort of try to gauge the western reaction function here what kind of sanctions will come and perhaps we can get into those a, a bit later and and potentially as well I, I think broader more broadly the plan is to gradually ramp up pressure on Ukraine militarily speaking so I think it seems given given the the, the reported the orders reportedly that the troops have crossed the border. To me, it seems like the plan would be to gradually kind of embolden some of the Russian separatists to to occupy more and more territory and effectively shift west into the country. Um, 
and, and ultimately end in uh, a similar situation to we saw in Crimea in 2014. So effectively, uh, another annexation of, of some Ukrainian territory. Now, kind of how, how we get there, as I say, is, is, um, is, is debatable. But it seems like at the moment that 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 we have um, we have a few scenarios that we've we've um, articulated at the, the research team, and, and one scenario we have is is this Crimea scenario, which is basically a, another annexation of fresh Ukrainian territory, and that certainly seems to be the way that we're going. Um, although we're we're perhaps not not quite there yet. Okay, so there's a sort of that Crimea situation as you sketched it out there, but I guess another potential analogy is is maybe the Georgia scenario uh, which seems to involve a rather more military escalation so perhaps you can sort of sketch out the sort of the potential scenario and risks of, around that kind of outcome absolutely yes yes you're, you're right i think the the so-called georgia scenario which is you know we we've um we've we've named that obviously um with the with the 2008 invasion um of georgia by russia in in mind um and effectively this just to give it a bit of background, was um, a similar situation to Ukraine, where there was breakaway region, but and then Russia invaded Georgia, but um, only partially, and stopped short of the occupying big cities and the capital city. So this is this is effectively what what the Georgia scenario would be in in Ukraine, um, a broader invasion, but one that stops short of Kiev and perhaps other large cities, mainly because you know. Occupying large cities is messy. It's a messy task. It um, it's very costly in terms of military life, um, and you are more often more often likely to come across um, like local militias and guerrilla warfare. So I think that's very messy, and, and history suggests that Putin does not want does not want to become embroiled in that. So I think there's a chance that um, Putin could go in um, and do kind of a broader invasion that stops short full invasion and that might be enough to extract some political concessions from from the west and, and from from ukraine okay well so that uh reference to the west is probably a good time victor to ask you sort of what the sanction response or any other response so far from the west has been around sort of this latest development and how its response is shaping up at the moment yeah so far we have seen the kind of knee-jerk sanctions from the u.s that is an executive order targeting um, the Donetsk and Luhansk region, prohibits any investments, imports, exports, financing or facilitating such transactions, but that is limited to only those two regions. Um, so you can argue that these are sanction lights, uh, given that the US has a quite broad arsenal of potential sanctions, this is probably the, the, the weakest possible, though I wouldn't exclude that there would be further economic sanctions attached to, to what happened last night, but it, we haven't heard about it yet. Uh, we had sanctions from the UK. Uh, they added five banks and three oligarchs to, to the sanctioned entities list. Um, once again, not really biting because all these entities, with the exception of one bank, have already been on the U.S. sanction list for a long time. So there is nothing new. And as we speak, we are awaiting the sanctions decision from the European Union. So far, we have only seen the headlines, but they do suggest that these will go beyond what we have seen from the, the U.S. and U.K. Uh, 
just now. Uh, it's also quite interesting to analyze why the US opted for these sanction lights. It fits with a narrative of, of what Biden called minor incursion. So they are not seeing uh, what happened last night as, as an invasion. Uh, basically, we're talking about kind of recognition of disputed territories, uh, but clearly it were Russia to move further, as, as Ed mentioned in, in his scenario analysis, even to the territories which are currently not occupied by separatists, but belong to uh, Donetsk and, and Luhansk. And here it is quite important to point out that uh, it hasn't been clarified what borders exactly Russia recognized. So there's a big ambiguity there, uh, whether it's just the territories currently occupied by separatists or whether it's the entire Donetsk-Luhansk uh, region. So were uh, the separatists or Russia moving to those territories, I think we will see a significant dial-up in sanctions. Okay, yeah, so you've given us a sense there of what might be a trigger for more sanctions. But as you say, what we've seen thus far is sort of sanctions light, but actually the full arsenal of US sanctions is actually pretty big. So can you give us a sense of sort of what other sanctions are available and sort of perhaps some of the steps um, that would lead to those being triggered? Sure. I mean, it's probably easier to... to talk about what kind of sanctions rather than the triggers, because that's a really fine balancing act from uh, the country applying the sanctions. I mean, sanctions have to be proportional, targeted, and effective. Uh, they also have to deter rather than punish. But in our case, probably we are more talking about exposed sanctions rather than deterring sanctions, because deterrents are not really working in a case of Russia. And it was quite, quite clearly stated by Putin that he expects the sanctions and he thinks that it's irrespective of, of what Russia does. But turning back to the, the options on the table, I mean, clearly there is a possibility to ban certain exports to Russia that most probably high-tech parts, equipment, which is no damage in the short term, but would really undermine uh, Russia's long-term growth potential. Uh, a lot of talks about sanctions against financial institutions, like the, the one that the UK has just imposed. Several banks are already on the US's sanction list, but there are more might be coming. Uh, possible sanctions against sectors and industries of the economy, and that can include extractive industries, which is kind of the key source of revenues for Russia. Though because the, the European Union depends on Russian commodities, that will be harder to, to push through. Uh, sanctions on Nord Stream 2, the pipeline, which Russia is really keen uh, on, on making operational. Uh, there is no real need for that extra capacity to supply Europe, but that would be one possibility of circumventing the current pipelines which go through Ukraine. Um, sanctions against sovereign debt. Uh, we already have some sanctions on new debt, but this time around, that would be sanctions on holding and transacting the debt. Uh, that would obviously be quite painful for, for the sovereign, not being able to issue more bonds to, to foreigners. Uh, and last but not least, the nuclear option of cutting Russia off from the global financial system, whether it's uh, banning the use of dollars or cutting them off the SWIFT system, which connects bank 
uh, this would be this would have a real devastating impact on on the Russian economy and and all the relations, trade relations. Obviously, that raises the question of, for example, how Europe would pay for for the gas supplies if there is no possibility of conducting financial transactions. But it's still an open question out there. Okay, so that gives us a very good sense of how the West could sort of escalate these things. And we've talked already about how Russia might escalate further. But perhaps, Ed, I probably should ask also, I mean, what what hope of sort of de-escalation from here? I mean, are there still diplomatic solutions on the table? I think there are solutions on the table, as, as, as you put it. Um, but it. But needless to say they, that the chances have probably diminished um, over, over the past 24 hours. I think just taking a step back, though, the... The fact, the ambiguity that we we sort of touched on a bit earlier as to to kind of whether the troops have crossed the border and that ambiguity around whether Russian troops are occupying additional, you know, any territory in Ukraine in addition to the current territories held by Russian separatists. Those grey areas are quite important because, A, they, they, they are probably likely to weaken the, the European sanctions response, as, as Victor alluded to. I think also it means that the diplomatic route is not completely dead. I think if if there's a, a, a very severe invasion, then it, of course, makes it much more difficult for both sides to get back around the negotiating table. Um, I think it's, it's kind of worth stressing that the, the, the US and NATO do seem to be um, willing to strike a fairly substantive deal on things like military restraint and missile deployment. Um, you know, there was the leaked there was a leaked response of the U- U.S. written response to the Russian demands, which showed that um, uh, member states like uh, U.S. Uh, sorry, um, European and uh, NATO member states like Romania and Poland were willing to strike deals on missile deployment in those countries. Um, so I think I think the West is likely to try to. Of course, they, they they would like a deal, um, and I think Putin has probably left the door open to one, given the ambiguity of the recent events. But I think it is unclear whether the West would be willing to cede enough ground on military restraint and missile deployment on these kind of non-direct NATO issues to placate Putin. Um, and I think it's probably just finally worth stressing here that there are. Um, probability distribution with these scenarios that we've sketched out at the research team was already skewed towards military escalation scenarios e- even before the latest developments. Um, and of course, these latest developments have, have strengthened our conviction on this, that, that um, it's, you know, it, it's difficult to see, um, you know, the diplomatic route is, is, is kind of fading in, in our view. Okay, that's understood. So maybe a sort of a final question then, Victor, is just to ask you around sort of some of the long-term consequences of this crisis in terms of sort of I suppose the US's and NATO's credibility, sort of Russian standing in the world, how we might think about, you know, future conflicts on the Eurasian mass with, you know, China, US politics, role of and the relationship between the EU and US. I mean, sort of taking a taking a step back and a and a look to the future. I mean, have we learned anything about some of those big questions as well from this? So there might be a perception that these events will redraw the global geopolitical map, but I don't think that that is the case. Um, clearly the US has made its strategic direction quite clear. It's a pivot to Asia. The US no longer sees Russia as its prime 
uh, adversary. Uh, it is clearly now China who is the prime rival to the US. And I think US will try to actually disengage as much as possible from Europe to, to, to be able to focus to Asia. I mean, clearly there will be long-term consequences for the main parties involved. Um, Russia can suffer a hit to its long-term growth, which has anyway not been spectacular given the countries facing its own demographic problems and over-reliance on the commodities sector, but sanctions can on the long run seriously undermine its competitiveness and growth potential. Uh, for Ukraine, I mean, clearly it's a bigger threat. Um, US and the Europe clearly indicated that they are not willing and not capable to defend Ukraine on the ground. And we know that sanctions are not able to prevent, to stop uh, any uh, actions from, uh, from, the, from Russia. But on the other side, there is a significant financial support which Ukraine can rely on, which once kind of this conflict dies down, would really help its economy to recover. And then we should think about Europe as well. I mean, Europe will have to be more self-reliant for its defense policy. US has given the backbone for not just for NATO's, but also for the European defense policy strategy. So Europe will have to think about that. And that has been in, in the brewing for a long time, politicians would easily push it into the background, but probably this conflict will bring it forward. And also maybe it will push Europe to finally reduce its heavy dependence on Russian oil and gas and metals. So that might be the, the positive read of events. Great. Well, those are some very interesting long-term thoughts. But for now, let's um, let's continue to hope for that peaceful resolution that Ed talked about. But I think that is all we have time for today. So all that remains is for me to thank Victor and Ed for their time today, their fantastic insights. And as I say, taking time at a period which I know is extremely busy for them. And also to thank you, the listener, uh, please do like and subscribe on your favoured podcast platform. And we look forward to speaking to you again soon. So thanks very much. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.